Often cited as the greatest Sherlock Holmes story of all time, The Hound of the Baskervilles puts Holmes in an unfamiliar setting. It's also a spooky whodunit that has you asking, did a dog done it? And this is The Book Pile. I'm Kellett Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and after reading this book, Probably not a dog person. And I'm David Vance. I think The Hound of the Baskervilles launched an important literary genre, the Scooby-Doo tale. You know that because the monster turns out to be fake, and Sherlock keeps saying his famous catchphrase, zoinks. (laughs) (laughs) All right, if you want to see me live, I'm going to be at the Dallas Comedy Club December 16th and 17th, if you're doing nothing a week before Christmas. Go to kellenerskin.com for tickets. Finally, our next two books are The Oxford Book of Aphorisms and The Spy Who Came In from the Cold. So I chose this book because I'd only read Sherlock Holmes short stories, and I thought it'd be fun to tackle a longer, spookier one for Halloween. Mm -hmm. By the way, happy Halloween if you're listening to this the day it's released while you're shopping clearance at that spirit store. (laughs) To those who celebrate. (laughs) To everyone else, happy holidays. (laughs) However you choose to celebrate the rising of the evil spirits from hell. (laughs) Yeah, happy Harvest Festival for those of you who can't handle skeleton costumes. (laughs) I did love that it takes homes out of London and into an evocative gothic setting. I loved a couple of the reveals. Uh, The disappointing thing for me is that the story is a lot like The Dark Knight Rises because Sherlock Holmes is in the first 15 minutes and then the last 15 minutes Uh and the rest of the fat middle of the book we have to hang out with just regular old Watson. (laughs) And without further ado, here are four lessons that we took from The Hound of the Baskervilles. All right. Lesson one. Have someone else tell people how funny and smart you are. (laughs) Sherlock Holmes is the most beloved character in modern history, I think, at least statistically. He holds the world record for the most portrayed character in film and TV. He's been depicted over 250 times. Oh my gosh. Uh, Some of my favorites have been Robert Downey Jr., Hugh Laurie, you know, as Dr. House, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Simon Cowell. Because he always solves the mystery of who should be famous for a month. (laughs) Dave, you've mentioned before that like no matter how flawed a character is, we'll enjoy watching them if they're the smartest person in the room. And Dave, you also are that person when it's just me and you in a room. I just think that (laughs) one of the reasons why these stories hit so well is that most of the time Sherlock doesn't narrate his own stories. Yeah, Can you imagine how off-putting it would be if he was like, And that's how I deduced it so quickly while everyone else was wrong. And then I said something (laughs) smart and witty to Watson. And then I did some drugs. Like, it just doesn't have the same feel (laughs) when it comes from the source. Most of these Sherlock Holmes stories are written with this limited first-person narrative, like The Great Gatsby, where you sort of get large glimpses into the more exciting character's life without being in their head. Like, we're only in Watson's head for this book. I think it works because Watson is such a boring straight arrow. Mm -hmm. Watson is like if Captain America got injured and then just had to follow Tony Stark around. (laughs) 
There's just so much contrast between the two of them that both of their personalities are exaggerated. Watson is about as fun as that Watson computer that kept winning at Jeopardy. Uh-huh. Just to illustrate how much of a dull, law-abiding citizen Watson is, at one point in this story, he chases a local escaped convict who, according to the convict's sister, would never hurt a fly. But Watson goes after him anyway and eventually agrees that this fugitive could be sent to South America. And Watson rationalizes it not because it would be merciful, but because it would relieve England of the tax burden. <laughs> And I'm not saying that to be exciting, you have to break the law, but it certainly doesn't hurt in a book. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, it's historically accurate for an 1800s Englishman to say, I'm going to make my problems the world's problems. (laughs) (laughs) So growing up, I realized that the Reader's Digest would do this with their humorous anecdotes. And I read the Reader's Digest a lot when I was in the bathroom at my grandma's house. Here's an example of a short, humorous real-life story that was sent to the Reader's Digest. Quote, After one of his second-grade flag football games ended in victory, our grandson asked, If the NFL drafts me, do I have to go? And you can just tell how much less funny this real-life story would have sounded if it had been the second grader who had sent it in himself. Uh And they're like, so I won this football game. And then get this, uh, I told my grandparents, say hey, if the NFL dress, like it would just seem self-serving uh-huh. and like, well, good for you, kid. Also, what an incredible idea that when a boy turns 18, he has to be drafted to the NFL for one day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, lesson two, use the murder mystery toolkit. I've been studying a lot of murder mysteries, both to learn what works well and also to learn the common mistakes like, oh, this will get you caught. And this book does some (laughs) things well and I think some things badly. So first trick, you usually don't want to be in the head of the character who is smart. Like we're never in Sherlock's head, we're never in Hercule Poirot's head or in Hermione's. It's usually more fun to be in the head of the idiot because it gives you a chance to figure it out. You can rest assured Watson is never going to beat you to the punch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there are mystery rules this book breaks, and I think it hurts it. First is, in a good mystery, the reader should actually have the clues. In this one, the damning evidence is not evidence we knew. Holmes says, Watson, you told me this guy was a teacher, so I researched teachers in the area, and look what I found. <laughs> and I get that that's what detectives actually do, but it is zero fun in a book. Mm-hmm. There's another moment when Sherlock realizes, oh, the killer looks exactly like this old portrait the readers can't see. <laughs> and then finally, like Kellen mentioned, If you have an iconic detective character and you killed him off and people begged you for eight years to bring him back and you finally did, he should probably be in more than like a quarter of the book. (laughs) It is like just a few pages into the book. I wouldn't have been surprised if if Bane showed up and was like, you adopted the dark. I was born in it. Then he breaks Sherlock's back, and that's why we don't see him for a while. I want to push back a little bit. I agree that Sherlock, especially at the very end, he just sort of tells us everything that he has figured out while he was away. (laughs) 
<laughs> rather than us being able to be a, a bigger part of the mystery. But there is a mystery that happens, you know, in this house in the moors, and there are clues like footsteps and, you know, cigar ashes. Well, can I ask, were there clues where you were like, oh, this clue made me think it was Stapleton? I'm just saying not all the clues were, were hidden from us. There were a lot more clues that Sherlock found out just sort of on his own. I want to read the book of everything that happened to Sherlock while he was away. <laughs> there should be a companion story to this. Can I push back on the pushback? Before Sherlock came and told you the research he did, what is like the case you would have made against Stapleton? Oh, I wouldn't have been able to solve it. <laughs> I mean, there was almost this sub-mystery, though, too, uh, where Watson discovers, mm -hmm. like, the identity of this escaped convict who's on the loose and why this guy is walking around at night and why is this woman screaming. But I, I agree that the murder mystery is not ever obvious to us. I feel like my favorite mysteries, it's like a hundred-piece puzzle, and it gets put together at the end in a very intricate way you wouldn't have seen. Mm -hmm. And I felt like this was like an eight-piece puzzle, and at the end, Sherlock came and said, I had a piece in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lesson three. Have strong bookends. I just mean that, especially when it comes to long-form narrative, much of the middle of a book can be forgiven if it's got a great beginning and a satisfying end. I do love how mm -hmm. this book starts. It's classic Sherlock Holmes, where he first asks Watson if his tiny mind can deduce anything from the stranger's walking stick. Watson tries, and then Sherlock just demolishes him. <laughs> I do love that over and over again, Watson is like, well, then why did you ask me? And Sherlock is always basically like, well, it just sort of helps me think. <laughs> I mean, he specifically says, you make so many mistakes that it helps me think clearly. <laughs> <laughs> So that that is always fun. And then the book ends with a murder solved, a new murder, Sherlock surprising Watson out of nowhere, and a flaming dog. Like, it's everything that I want for my next birthday party. But <laughs> as usual, I didn't look up anything about this book until after I listened to it. And I was somewhat surprised to see that it's at the top of so many lists as the best Sherlock Holmes story. Uh, admittedly, I've only read a few of his short stories. I do find them very fun, especially within the context of the era. But for the consensus of this to be considered the best, my theory is just that it's so strong on either end so that the entire middle devoid of the main character, uh, people are willing to look over that. <laughs> but like I said, I've loved the short stories. I just and maybe I've been spoiled with Agatha Christie, who maybe you know would not have existed if it weren't for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, because mm -hmm. he was her father. No, um, <laughs> that's the real twist. I know that he paved the way, and so I did try and read it in the context of the time. I just think of it as so many tricks have been invented since then. Like, I love the NBA. If I go back and watch a Bob Cousy game, it's going to really bore me. But that's not Bob Cousy's fault. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They've invented a lot of new dribbles since then. <laughs> yeah, <it's... laughs> and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was such a pioneer. He was the guy who created the cool detective. Uh-huh. Like, it just wasn't a thing. It would be the same as, like, like if someone now is like, hey, you got to read this fun plumber book 
I'm sure at the time people were like, "Oh, cool, a detective." You know, uh-huh. I would push your example even further and be like, "Watching the NBA now is fun. Can you imagine watching the guy who invented the ball?" <laughs> I just I wouldn't recommend this as a first read if you're trying to experience Sherlock Holmes for the first time. I would say go straight to the short stories because they really are fun and you don't get this weird gap in the middle where he isn't there. Uh-huh. Just skip the racist stories. All right. <laughs> All right. Lesson four. This is a short one. If you ask someone if you can marry his sister and he goes ballistic on you, but then he calms down and smiles and says, ask me again in three months, he is planning to kill you. (laughs) Also, he might already be married to the woman he says is his sister. (laughs) Sometimes there's more than one reason why two people have the same last name. (laughs) I've never looked up if this was apocryphal, but... Eleanor Roosevelt was FDR's like distant cousin, and her last name was already Roosevelt. And my teacher told me when he proposed, he said, my dear, you won't have to change your monogram. Oh, (laughs) what an efficient way to be creepy. (laughs) Maybe be suspicious if you ever come across a hot Lannister on Tinder. (laughs) I've never been on a dating app because I got married before them. But on my profile, I would definitely put that I always pay my debts. (laughs) Ah, yes. The kind of non-threatening thing any woman wants to hear. (laughs) (laughs) All right, random facts. I found online the most delightful blog about this book. It's so endearingly bad. Here are some excerpts. Then the man who approaches him says, It is a lovely evening, my dear Watson, and it could only be one person, and that of whom was Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Another... As Dr. Watson is telling the story when he narrates, Over the green squares of the fields and the low curve of a wood there rose in the distance a gray melancholy hill with a strange jagged summit dim and vague in the distance like some fantastic landscape in a dream. Got me thinking about the scenery during the scene. Also had me thinking that was a major significance of that the moor had to play. But what exactly? (laughs) (laughs) This is like when I would write a book report And I would just quote as much of the book as possible for the word count, and then just ask a question and not answer it. Every word is like someone sat bolt upright in bed and talked in their sleep. (laughs) Sorry, give me a minute. I need to uh, delete some blog posts. (laughs) So apparently Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was pretty ambivalent about his Sherlock Holmes creation. So he tried killing him off in the final problem where he and Moriarty fall off a waterfall. People were so mad about it, though, that then he wrote this book. But there's nothing in it about like, and uh, I actually held on to some rocks. (laughs) There's nothing. It's just like uh, Sherlock Holmes was there again. (laughs) It's like they get to Lothlorien and Gandalf is like, all right, what next? (laughs) (laughs) So that would have been insane to read at the time. But to be fair to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, or as he liked to be called, Sir ACDC, he did explain Holmes's return starting in a series of short stories that came out over a year after this book was published. 
Hmm. Holmes is going on about how he doesn't believe in ghosts. He only believes in science. And then he immediately starts talking about phrenology. (laughs) (laughs) He says, it's as easy for me to solve this case as it is for you to tell what race someone is by the shape of their skull. It's like, oh, no, Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) Please believe in ghosts instead. (laughs) I do love so much of uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's writing. How he illustrates the interior of this gothic house in the moors, for example. He says, The dining room was a place of shadow and gloom. Black beams shot across our heads with a smoke-darkened ceiling, rows of flaming torches to light it up. A dim line of ancestors in every variety of dress stared down upon us and daunted us by their silent company. I just think such a wonderful dark description of a room that I would one day like to have if I ever run an Airbnb. <laughs> So until I finally listened to this book last week, I have my entire life said the Hounds of Baskerville rather than the Hound of the Baskervilles, which can't we agree, mine works better. But it is as if my whole life I've been saying, oh yeah, one of my favorite books, uh, Wuthering's Height. (laughs) That's why she can't resist him. (laughs) (laughs) lords of the fly hey do you ever have to read tolstoy in high school wars and (laughs) p lords of the fly for sure sounds like a fresh prince knockoff they tried to get greenlit in the 90s (laughs) (laughs) so speaking of agatha christie uh, there's one parallel between this book and And then there were none, which is that they both have characters that eat tinned tongue. If you want to go back to that episode, I think I ranted on it for a good nine minutes. I'm just so glad that this isn't a snack option anymore. (laughs) What if it's delicious because you can taste everything that animal tasted? (laughs) I guess that would be grass and barley. (laughs) The dark twist of that would be uh, that it's only good if it's a human tongue. (laughs) So, Dave, I was once published in the Reader's Digest. Nice. I've had one joke published in Boy's Life magazine and one in the Reader's Digest. And with those two credits, for years I had it on my resume that I was a published writer that I had been published in magazines such as The Reader's Digest, among others. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you mean among other? <laughs> the joke was actually the first stand-up joke of mine that worked when I started doing open mics. The joke was, I got kicked out of a Halloween party last night for showing up naked wearing just a red shirt. I guess no one had heard of Winnie the Pooh. happy halloween everyone now you could think of that (laughs) all right to recap our favorite lessons from the hound of the baskervilles one have someone else tell people how funny and smart you are two use the murder mystery toolkit three have strong bookends four if you ask someone if you can marry his sister and he goes ballistic on you but then he calms down and smiles and says ask me again in three months he is planning to kill you and five have really strong bookends. <laughs>